Most people who visit Paris plan to see at least one of its great museums. Coming up, we'll get a peek at some of its lesser-known specialty museums, those one-of-a-kind gems that are hidden in plain sight. A lot of people sort of want their unique experience of a city that so many people go to. The Louvre, on the other hand, is more than just home to Mona Lisa. It's the world's largest and busiest art museum, and its architecture contains clues to the history of France. What we see above ground today goes back 500 years. In the south of France, you're more likely to spend a lot of time outdoors. It's the weather, I think, that attracts people, the beautiful beaches, the lovely little towns, the villages in the backcountry. There's a lot to do. Looking at the Louvre, the specialty museums of Paris, and the beauty of the French Riviera, it's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. There's a special kind of blue to the Mediterranean in the south of France. Coming up, we'll explore the appeal of the Côte d'Azur, the French Riviera. We'll also get a unique view of the world's largest art museum, the Louvre in Paris. Art and architecture critic James Gardner helps to frame out a visit to its overwhelming collection with a focus on the magnificent rooms and architecture of the palace itself. Paris is also home to dozens of little-known and often underappreciated museums and galleries that you can visit to create your own special slice of Paris. Emma Jacobs starts today's Travel with Rick Steves as we consider a few of them, which she includes in her book, The Littler Museums of Paris. We're at 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. Our conversation was recorded before the pandemic lockdowns began. Hey, Emma. Thank you for having me. I I find that everybody these days especially wants to go to the the same places. There's this sort of Instagram herd mentality. Everybody wants their selfie in in front of the Mona Lisa and so on. Uh, As a a person who knows and loves Paris, does it seem to you that this is a a real challenge for people to get away from those famous museums and and give give a little love to the other sites? You know, I do think that's true, but I also think a lot of people sort of want their unique experience of a city that so many people go to. So I think a lot of people are looking for somewhere everyone else is not going. And the rewards of that are greater now than ever. I mean, people wait for two hours to get into the Orsay and you can step right into the the Clooney Museum or you can step right into the Rodin Museum. Yes, absolutely. And there are pop-up museums are also very big in Paris right now. So what does that mean? Uh, It's about the experience of going to a space that is, you know, only going to be open for a couple of months and you got to be in the know and you Hmm. to to see something no one else will. That sounds like a dirty trick on a tourist. How would a tourist be in the know and not miss something like that? Uh, Yeah, you got to pay attention and (laughs) do a lot of research and reading ahead of time. Because there's lots going on in Paris, that's for sure. For sure, all the time. So let's talk about some of the museums that, that I think are substantial but I think they're underappreciated. Uh, what, do you, what is your take on the Carnavalet? Uh, the Musée Carnavalet is undergoing a big renovation. I actually haven't been there yet, but it's, it's going to be fantastic. Um, and it's a, a history museum, the history of Paris, and it has period rooms, which are, are very fun to walk through. 
and just all sorts of, of relics from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the city's history. And you explained in your book, The Littler Museums of Paris, that Baron Haussmann actually had something to do with the, the creation of this collection? or Because Haussmann, I think of as the guy who, who brought Paris all of these grand boulevards and all of this uniform architecture where you've got the same amount of floors and the, and the nice uh, slate roofs and so on. Uh, did he recognize that all this development was going to bulldoze some of the heritage of the, of the city? You know, it's it's funny because he is he's really criticized for destroying medieval Paris, but at the same time was was looking to create a place that would preserve some of the history and that actually incorporated elements from some of the buildings he took down. Hmm. And the Carnivale has more items than the Louvre, actually. So they've got plenty to show off in that museum. Yeah, their reserves are, are insane. It's an old mansion that goes back to the 1600s. And they actually took over a second. It's actually now uh, two urban mansions that are combined by a little walkway. So if you want sort of just your quintessential kind of historical museum for Paris, Carnavalet is a good one. Absolutely. Now, another one is the Museum of the Middle Ages, the Musée de Cluny. And that's actually built in the remains of a third century Roman bath, reminding us that Paris was a, a Roman town. Uh, yes, it it is... Um also something that, that started from a private collection, like a lot of museums did, and has just grown and grown and is a really special and, and unique place to visit. And it's never crowded. It's amazing to me. And it's got exquisite art of the Middle Ages. This is the Museum of the Middle Ages, and Paris was so important in the Middle Ages. And it's right there in the, in the left bank. You can walk to it in 10 minutes from all the touristy stuff you do in the Latin Quarter. It's got some particular exhibits that just... They'll blow you away. The, the Lady in the Unicorn Tapestry is one of the most sumptuous pieces of art anywhere. It's, uh, w- what's your take on that wonderful tapestry that's uh, what, 600 years old? Well, and some people may have heard about it. That's one of the more famous art objects in Paris. Uh, but it is in this smaller museum, and you can see it up close. It's been beautifully restored. And you can read, you know, are there all these takes on what it means, what the tapestries stand for, this sort of mysterious woman with a unicorn in these six different scenes. Also, we've got the famous um, heads from the Notre Dame that are that are now on display in the in the safety of the museum. Yeah. And for a lot long time, people thought those had been thrown in the Seine and were gone. And then they were were rediscovered and came to the Cluny. So if you're looking for the Middle Ages, it would be the Musée de Cluny. Emma Jacobs provides thoughtful details and charming illustrations in her book, The Littler Museums of Paris. You'll find a link to her work and a web extra about the sensuality of the woman and the unicorn tapestry. It's with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. There was a time when, when France had the third biggest Jewish population anywhere, a very important Jewish heritage in Paris, specifically the Marais. And right there next to Falafel Row, you've got uh, the Museum of Jewish Art and History. Yeah, and it was actually opened pretty recently, um, and the core of it is a collection of medieval Jewish art that was part of the Clooney's collection and spent most of its time in storage. And they did a special exhibition. It was very popular, and they said, well, you know, maybe maybe there's a, a museum in here. That is a great thing because there's so many of these museums have a collection far bigger than what they can display and uh, opened in 1998, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that museum, it's, it doesn't cover the Holocaust. It covers Judaica and shows the richness and diversity of Jewish culture. Apart from that, there's, there's a Holocaust memorial nearby. But if you really want to learn about Jewish history and culture and the diversity of Judaism in Europe, this is just a, um, a must-see museum, I would say. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Emma Jacobs, and her book is The Littler Museums of Paris, covering about 200 museums in and around Paris. It's an illustrated guide to the city's hidden gems. You know, Emma, when I'm thinking of great museums in Paris, one museum that is particularly intimate and just simply enjoyable is the Musée Jacques-Mart Andreas. It's just a, a wealthy mansion filled with exquisite art and done so tastefully. Yes, absolutely. It is just the most elegant place. There's nothing like it. These people, were they were just filthy rich, and they loved art, and they had no kids, and they liked to show off, apparently. So they had this incredible mansion, and they just dedicated their lives and their passion and their fortune to filling this place with... Uh, first, it was Italian Renaissance, basically, right? Well, you know, first thing is she came from a very modest background and actually supported herself as a society painter in the 1860s, which Uh I think is super impressive. And then marries this banking heir who was a collector of art. They go to Italy together and, and do collecting together. And then after he dies, she continues to collect all sorts of art and antiques and actually has a, a whole chateau she's filled outside the city of as well, which is a, a second museum. And it comes with, I remember it comes with a nice guided tour also. Or you can remember when you go to these museums, if they have an audio guide or something, uh, consider taking advantage of it. We have an email from Justin in Bellevue, Washington, and, and Justin writes, one of the best surprises I had on a recent trip to Paris was going to the Musée Jacques-Mart André, the same museum we're talking about. He says it was such a, a great combination of art and architecture Along with the traveling exhibit, which included Cezanne, Botticelli, and Rembrandt, it was a more memorable experience than the other more famous museums he visited. So uh, these museums also host traveling exhibits, and uh, Justin uh, enjoyed Cezanne, Botticelli, and Rembrandt in that already beautiful, beautiful museum. Uh, The Musée for uh, Rodin, the the greatest sculptor, I think, in Europe since Michelangelo, uh, it fills one of these wonderful mansions or hotels in the city. Um, a great thing about the Rodin Museum is it comes with a garden that's also filled with masterpieces, and you get a sense of the artist's studio. How do you like the Rodin Museum? I, it's wonderful, and it's probably one of the, the better-known and, and more trafficked of the small museum, and there's a reason for that, because it's just it's such a lovely space, um, and the, the work's incredible, and you can see all these process plasters mm. And and just get a sense of not only, you know, the, the works that we've seen photos of and are just capture motion in this really incredible way. But also you can see the all the models that he was he was making in, in preparation for those larger works. So that is something that is really a beautiful dimension of a museum when they give you a little peek into the creative spirit, the, the genius of the artist. And you get to understand the whole process when you go to a museum like the Rodin. Yeah, and he had this particular habit where he he often, to understand how he wanted clothes to hang on people, he would do versions first where they were nude, and then he would gradually build the layers on to to just understand exactly how things should hang. Mm. So much to see and enjoy in Paris. We've got an email uh, talking about one of my favorite museums in Paris from Richard in Lebanon, Indiana. And Richard writes, My wife and I went to see Musée Mamartan in the 16th arrondissement. It's a nice walk from the Eiffel Tower on the north side of the Seine. You walk through a very chic park, and then you get to this large mansion and a lot of Monet and Napoleon uh, material from the Napoleonic age. It's very quirky and fun, and his uh, wife got yelled at for trying to hang her coat on a non-approved rack. Yes, you have to be careful in these museums. But the Mar- Mamartan is a great museum, both for Napoleonic things and for Monet. 
Yeah. So that's, again, it's two private collections that were stuck together. Uh, the Marmotin collection, which uh, was empire art and furniture, and then the Monet family collection that was left to the museum. Uh, and there's also a, a great room full of amazing illuminated manuscripts mm. that that is, again, just it got donated. It ended up just as a little annex to this museum. It's a it's a fun one, and it's, it's very eclectic. It's amazing how Paris says it. it's got a gravity for all of this stuff. So much great culture and art is collected and beautifully displayed and shared in Paris. And if you're a culture vulture, you give yourself five days and a Paris museum pass, you could just spend every day going like crazy to all these amazing sites. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Emma Jacobs. Her book is The Littler Museums of Paris, an illustrated guide to the city's hidden gems, reminding us that, yes, you're going to see the Louvre and you're going to see the Orsay, but there's a couple hundred other museums in and around Paris that do deserve your consideration. Emma, clearly you put a lot of work into this book. I'm curious, as you worked on that, is there some overreaching sort of lesson that you'd like your travelers to take seriously so they get the most out of their time in Paris? Uh, just leave the beaten path. Go go somewhere new, and you'll have a, I, I think a you know a more valuable experience than if you beeline straight from the Louvre to the Eiffel Tower. I think there's so much hiding out, and just because it's not famous doesn't mean it's not worth your time and, and won't be a beautiful experience. Absolutely, Emma Jacobs. Thanks for the work you've put into writing your book, The Littler Museums of Paris, and best wishes as you continue to share the the cultural wonders of Paris with so many travelers. Thank you very much. By the way, the renovated Carnivalet Museum has just reopened, but like many museums now, it requires timed reservations to enter. Up next, we admire the Louvre for its architecture as well as its art. And in a bit, guides from France take us to the sunny French Riviera. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage. Right, oui. Would I say je voyage souvent? De temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steves. Wow. You're, you've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steves. you got to sound like Maurice Chevalier or something, and it's, it's actually good, or Inspector Clouseau. Well, so many Americans, too, you know... Like, I've got a friend in Paris, probably the least self-conscious person I know. In elle parle français comme ça. Yeah. And when you go to a restaurant, excusez-moi, mais j'ai commandé <laughs> la salade niçoise sans la tone. <laughs> oh. It's the world's largest and busiest and arguably its greatest art museum. But it can be overwhelming. James Gardner examines what the grounds and buildings of the Louvre can show us about the history of Paris in his book, The Louvre. The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James explores the site's origins as a quarry and vineyard, a 12th century fortress, a 14th century royal palace, and even the controversial glass pyramid entrance that IMP added to its courtyard. He joins us now to point out details of the imposing museum that many visitors to Paris might overlook. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me. You know, this is so important to look at the Louvre as something more than a collection of great paintings. And I've got a powerful memory, along with all the great art, of exploring some corner of this massive building and coming upon a huge turret of medieval bricks far below street level. And it reminded me, this thing's got a lot of history. And that's what your book's all about, isn't it? That's right. It uh, The history of the Louvre, of the 
site that is now the Louvre uh, goes back thousands of years, but there has been something built on that site for the past 800 years. And what we see above ground today goes back 500 years. The thing you're referring to is the remains of a medieval castle and before that a medieval fortress from around 1200, which lay hidden underneath the pavement of the main courtyard of the Louvre mm. for hundreds of years after it was finally obliterated by Louis XIV. And it would be another 200 years before it was rediscovered in the 1860s. And then they covered it up again. And it was only with the creation of the Grand Louvre, uh, starting in, eight, in 1989, that it was open to the public. Okay. And if you go there now, you see uh, something that for centuries people only suspected was there, but now anyone who wants can go to see it. Right. Now, when we tourists go there to, to see our favorite pieces of art, we're stepping into a building that I believe in its day was the biggest building in the world. It's a, a building that has been built through king after king after emperor. And when you explore it, when you drive around it, I remember you see the insignia, the initials of the various kings who, who ruled at the time that that wing was added. Uh, what, what can we learn just by driving around the building? Well, you'll notice that, as you say, it's extremely large. From one end to the other, it's about half a mile in length. Uh, as far as I know, if not the largest, longest building in the world, certainly one of the top two or three. Yeah. It was originally not longer, but bigger, because there was a palace at the western end of it called the Tuileries Palace, which uh, these communards burned to the ground in 1871. But for that, it would be even bigger. And it's because of that that now you have this great prospect. When you look from the pyramid all the way to the west, you see the Arc de Triomphe, and behind that, the Arc de la Défense, a vista of six miles. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I've always been fascinated by this. It's called something like the Grand Perspective or something like that. That's not just accidental. I mean, it's you can read a lot of history into that axis, can't you? In a way, it is accidental in the sense that if all had gone to plan, the as I said, the Tuileries Palace would have been in the way, so you wouldn't have seen I see, yeah. that great. Yeah, so it seems so perfect that everyone yeah. imagines that there was some great planning behind oh, it. Oh, that's funny. But for that reason, it was decided to double the extent of it in the 1980s with the Grande Arche de la Défense. Right. So it is one of the grand perspectives and to, to, to me, it sort of illustrates the sweep of history. You got the old regime in this former royal palace, and then mm -hmm. you go up to the place where the guillotine, you know, physically cut off the head of the old regime. That's right. And then you got the yeah. People's Boulevard up to the arch that was to celebrate, which I think, is Napoleon, yeah, Napoleon, and, and then nationalism, and then beyond that, the Arc de la Défense, which is probably the the part of this where most of our listeners might not know. That's the modern arch that's so big you could stick the Arc de Triomphe under it, and that's just a, a, a sort of a celebration of the, the modern global economy to me. So you've got this amazing expanse, uh, and it's kind of part of the city planning of Paris, if, if even accidental. That's right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner, and his book is The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. 
Let's go back to the palace here. When we're thinking about the palace, one of my favorite things is to look at the colonnade, which reminds me this is a grand palace from the 1600s. But then when you go into the museum, there's actually a room that has a plaque in it that says the museum was open to the public and just after the French Revolution, right? And it's amazing. During the French Revolution. It was during. So wasn't it one of the great declarations that this art is for the people? We cut the king's head off, and now what are you going to do with all this great art? Let's open it up and have a museum. Uh, That's sort of it. I, I should say that the planning of the transformation of the palace into a museum had been talked about starting around 1750, which was during the Ancien Régime. Mm. So actually when in 1793, when everyone's head was getting cut off, the decision was made officially to open it as a museum. Uh, That was in a sense a continuation of what had been the stated policy of the Ancien Régime. It's interesting that when it was open in in November uh, 1793, it was not nearly as big as it would be a few years later because a few years later, the armies of the revolution, especially under Napoleon Bonaparte, would ransack all the princely collections in Germany, in Holland, in Spain, in France itself, in uh, Italy above all, especially in Rome, and all of those ill-gotten gains would be sent to the Louvre. Um, So it was at that point, I mean, probably now the Louvre is the greatest collection in human history. It was probably, you could argue, twice as impressive in the 15 or so years during which Napoleon was in power had gotten possession of all these extraordinary works of art Hmm. and had not yet been compelled to give them back, which happened after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is James Gardner. He's a respected art and architecture critic from New York. He explores the Louvre inside and out in his book called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, James, when we're going through the Louvre, of course, we're going to be looking at all the great paintings that hang on the wall, but it's really important to remember we're walking through what was a magnificent palace, and we could you could take the paintings out and still charge admission to the place, and it could be a good value. One of my favorite rooms is the um, Apollo, is it called the Apollo Gallery, where you've got the, the old crown jewels, and the, the room itself is just sumptuous. Give us just a a sense of what we might look for in the Louvre beyond great paintings. Well, first of all, you you have a number of great period rooms. You you mentioned quite properly the Gallery of Apollo, which has, as you say, the crown jewels of France. The form we we see it in now, it was more or less conceived around 1661 after a fire in that room, but it wasn't really completed until the 1850s. And it's got, you know, paintings by Lebrun, it's got paintings by Delacroix, uh, Claire Rousseau, a number of other excellent painters of the Ancien Régime. Uh, it's this... And, and those paintings are actually not hanging on the wall, but they're part of... They're the on, the ceiling. Or, or on, the they're ceiling. on the ceiling. Yeah, so we can look at 
that great art by great painters designed into the, the ceilings and the walls of the building itself. Exactly. That part, of, that part of the Louvre has some of the finest period rooms that you'll find anywhere. You have right next to it the Room of the Seven Chimneys. You have on the other side the Salon Carré, which is an extremely important room in history because that was where every year you had the Salon, the annual Salon. Our word Salon for a periodic art exhibition comes from that one room. Hmm. That was the center of all the attention of Paris, if not the, the entire artistic world, wow. every August after 1737. So it's an important room in the history of art history. But the thing is that uh, some of these rooms, like the Galerie d'Apollon, um, is in a perfect state of preservation. Others have been rather beaten up mm -hmm. through a change, especially in the post-war years, where that kind of extraordinary, extravagant opulism ceased to be in fashion. Mm -hmm. So one of the finest rooms, the Salon Carré, which I just mentioned, uh, it's hard to see how beautiful it once mm -hmm. was. Well, that's, that's more reason than ever to go to a room like the Apollo Gallery and remember, that's your chance to see the palace. One room I love, which everybody just walks right through, is right after the Mona Lisa. That's right. And that room, I don't believe it's got paintings hanging, but it's got paintings built in on the ceiling and the wall. I could just pull up a lounge chair and gaze at the ceiling for a long time and, and just be enthralled. Well, good for you for noticing uh, those paint that painting. It, it, you're talking about, I think it's called the Galerie du Nom. I think that's the technical name mm -hmm. of it. And it is a, indeed a beautiful room. It was created, the architecture and the painting, in the 1850s. But it's interesting in that it depicts the history of the Louvre, the series of events that turned it from a palace into a museum. Mm -hmm. So you have scenes of François Premier, you have Louis XIV, you have uh, various steps along the path to its creation as a, a museum. And, and Francis and, I was a very important character in assembling the collection, wasn't he? That's right. It was he who acquired the Mona Lisa, for example, as well as a number of other paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, whom he invited to France mm -hmm. in the first place. Yeah. You know, the, the building's big, the museum's big, and the topic is big. We could talk forever. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner. His book is The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James, the big news in our generation is the glass pyramid. And, you know, controversial in its time, but it is just a reminder that the Louvre has been a work in progress. What's your take on this famous pyramid that created a new entry right in the middle of the courtyard the vast building surrounds? Um, well, I am a great admirer of what IMP, the Chinese-American architect, created there. Um, I think it's probably the single most impressive stroke of architectural genius in the past 50 years, not only because of its form, but because of its function and the combination of form and function with mm -hmm. symbolism. It had to check three boxes, so to speak, and it did check all three in an exemplary fashion. The three boxes would be it looks good, it functions well, and it has symbolic meaning? Yes, because uh, oddly enough, 
it, it works because the Louvre is one of the centers of Egyptology, in the, one of the main centers of Egyptology in the world. It has mm. possibly the best collection anywhere, mm -hmm. and it's famous for that. One of the reasons it's famous for that is that Napoleon, you know, overran Egypt basically around 1801. And where you have the pyramid now is called the Cour Napoléon, Napoleon's court, named after him. So for a, a slew of reasons, everything comes together in the pyramid uh, to create this symbolic resonance as well as a formal and functional resonance. Um, I would just like to say that as fine as that structure is, it's really the roof, the covering of what's known as the Hall of Napoleon, which is down below grade. And there probably aren't that many people today who remember what it was like entering the Louvre before that was created. And it was a sort of dispiriting, unimpressive mm -hmm. entryway. Now you have a really grand, beautiful entranceway. You know, dispiriting is the good word for that. I remember well going into the museum in the old days, and it felt like you were sneaking into the the back of a warehouse or something. And now <laughs> you have this grand entry. And of those boxes we checked, I mean, that pyramid is certainly functional. I, I, I'm so thankful for the way the design of the welcome is. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with James Gardner, and his book is The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James, I'd like to get just a couple of tips from you as an as a art critic and, and a historian who really knows the museum. The building is massive. It's got 36,000 works of art on display and what I understand 8 million visitors enter every year. What's your basic tip for, for the casual tourist that wants to enjoy the museum rather than being exhausted by it? What, what's your advice? Well, assuming that this is your first time there, what I would suggest you do is undergo a process that I like to call filter feeding, Filter feeding, I understand, is what whales do at the bottom of the sea. They just open their mouths and float, and whatever comes in nourishes and sustains them. So rather than trying too hard to pay attention to each object, which will exhaust you, you should just walk through it and notice everything that you see and mm. take it all in. Um, that you, you know that all, is great advice because I have done that accidentally with the Grand Gallery. That's a quarter mile long, I believe, the longest gallery of art anywhere. And I don't know the names of these painters. I don't care about any particular one, but I just walk through there, and now I know what I'm doing: filter feeding, like a big whale. The filter feeding, yeah. It's a cool idea. Well, if you do that, you'll enjoy yourself rather than exhausting yeah. yourself. And then you should make a mental note to go back to see this, that, or the other right. thing. James, just a last thought. What's the future of the building and the museum? Well, I assume it will not only continue as we know it today, but it will be enhanced. And uh, I actually heard that th there's this courtyard, a very beautiful one, with this horseshoe-like configuration inside of it. Uh, no one can go there. Most people never even know it exists. Uh, you can sometimes see it out of the corner of one of the windows. They had been planning to open it in early 2020, but because of COVID, that mm -hmm. didn't come to pass. 
So I would assume, I would hope that that's the next thing to open, and it will be most impressive if it does. Ah, it's just great to know that the city values it. It's going to be continually a place to celebrate culture and to welcome people from around the world. James Gardner, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the, the Louvre as a building and an institution. Thank you very much for having me. Dans cette chambre sans la vue, impasse de la vertu. C'est rien qu'une histoire de curien, qu'une histoire vécue. The Louvre has made its entire collection of nearly half a million works available online for examination up close. We have a link to that at ricksteves.com slash radio. Next, we travel south for the sun and the beauty of the French Riviera on Travel with Rick Steves. As home to the world's most fashionable film festival and its most glamorous beaches, the French Riviera, or the Côte d'Azur, is certainly the most stylish stretch of Mediterranean coastline. Its art and cuisine are fresh and colorful, and its popularity means a little insider advice for enjoying the region will help a lot when you're heading off to the Riviera. We're joined in our studio by two French guides, Nina Sefuzati and Véronique Savoy, and they're going to share tips and insights on France's favorite getaway destination. Nina and Véronique, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Véronique, what does the French Riviera mean to the, the people of France? A place where the weather is wonderful. It's a pretty affluent uh, vacation location. Uh, it's not cheap to go there, so I think a lot of people go there and they're ready to spend some money there. Um, it's the weather, I think, that attracts people, the beautiful beaches, uh, the lovely little towns, the villages in the backcountry. There's a lot to do. Does the TGV, I know it goes to Avignon, does it go from Paris all the way to the Riviera? Uh, yeah, you can do Marseille, or you can do uh, Nice as well, though it crawls all the way to Nice. <laughs> it's not a TGV anymore all the way to oh, Nice. Okay. Yeah, Nice it, to Paris by train is very slow. But Nice to Paris by airplane is quite easy. Yeah, and a lovely airport in Nice and very efficient. I love That's the, the airport in Nice. I've yeah. flown home to the United States. Uh, from there. Leaving from Nice, it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just great. What does Côte d'Azur mean? The Azure Coast, uh, the Blue Coast, because of the Mediterranean, that's right there. We nickname, uh, the Mediterranean's nickname is La Grande Bleue, huh? the ah, Big Blue. I've never heard of the so Big Azure, Blue. So Azure, it's blue. And, and you see it if you land it in Nice. From yeah. It's a beautiful sight when you land in Nice from the plane. Yeah. It's gorgeous. You know, from the little hilltop in Nice, I love looking down at the coast, the, oh, the, yeah. the pal- what is it, the uh, Anglaise, the Promenade des Anglais, Anglais. Yeah. the English Promenade, uh-huh. and that beautiful arc of a beach, and yeah. then you see that beautiful blue water. Nina, what is your story? You're, you're Danish, but you ended up in the, living in the south of France. I ended up in the south of France, one of the worst places to live. <laughs> because, and, and what brought I'm, you to the south of well, France? Well, because I met a Frenchman. <laughs> you met a Frenchman. The, and, the Dane uh, meets the Frenchman. The Dane meets the Frenchman. So, so I, I ended up living in the south of France. So I think, mm, I can do this. It's great so, weather, but I, I discovered the beauty of the area also. And you lead groups around, and you're a tour uh-huh. guide in the south of France. It's, yeah. uh, there's a lot of tourism in the south of France, a lot oh, of yeah. great guides. And you're like a lot of the people historically that have fallen in love with the French Riviera. When you mm-hmm. think about the French Riviera, it's where Brits, where Russians, where artists, where VIPs mm-hmm. throughout the generations have, have ended up. What's the story with the connection with Britain and with Russia? Well, actually, it started with um, there was a British doctor who uh, figured out that the nice climate, the perfect climate for all these tuberculosis, ah. mm, all kind of breathing problems for the Brits 
because they have terrible weather in Britain. We know that, right? So they sort of get mauled in your lungs so, or something. But that was, it's interesting because he wrote this book about like climate treatment, right? Your, your treatment yeah. through climate. So all these Brits went away, and and then because it became fashionable, right? this, this would be in the in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, it actually started late seventeen hundreds and then oh, continued through okay. the eighteen hundreds, and then it was a really boom right at the end of the eighteen hundreds. But it went slow in the beginning, and then mm-hmm. it, it came up. And then the, the Russians followed because it became fashionable. Right? It became fashionable. Well, to, if you don't like the weather in London, you probably don't, like, don't like the, the weather, weather in, in Moscow. Right? In Moscow, <laughs> Moscow exactly. Yeah. And then they started buying these huge villas and you know building, and that's why there's a Russian Orthodox church in Nice, for instance. It's, it's quite a magnificent surprising. church. Beautiful church. Yeah. And there's a huge chandelier in the big hotel, mm-hmm. I think. In uh, what is it? Negresco. Negresco. Yeah. It's a beautiful hotel to, if you uh-huh. can sneak in. Right. On, it's oh, I, sort of. Thin, yeah. It's sort of. <laughs> the elegance of the old days. And uh, you step mm. into that ballroom mm. and you go, my goodness, this chandelier looks like for a Russian czar or something know, like that. Yeah. And it actually was. Yeah. And then in what, 1917, mm. the revolution yep. in Russia yep. breaks yep. out. You built this big chandelier. Let's hang it in the hotel. Mm. A little bit of uh, this reminder that early tourism was for um, nobles was, and aristocrats, and they would well, go it's down interesting, to the yeah. And it starts off as a treatment for against diseases of right. different kinds, right? And there's like a you you need this treatment if you have money to go to the river. In fact, right? the front door of the beachfront hotel mm-hmm. is actually on the back side. Mm-hmm. Originally, there we go. why was that? Because they avoided the sunshine, didn't they? Yeah, they didn't want to get a suntan. That wasn't fashionable. Now it's pretty fashionable. The, I the would poor say. people out in the fields would have uh-huh. a suntan. Oh, but yeah. if you're an oh. elegant woman, you don't want it. Oh tan. no, you covered up. You covered up, right? Get umbrellas up. and they had the long sleeves yeah. and yeah. Oh yeah. Our guides to the French Riviera today on Travel with Rick Steves are Nina Sefuzati. She guides tours to southern France from her home base in Provence. And Véronique Savoy, who offers custom tours of Paris, plus online virtual tours and French lessons at frenchgirlinseattle.com. Our interview was recorded shortly before the pandemic began. One thing about the French Riviera is it's strung to me like a bunch of charms along a bracelet uh, Mm -hmm. right along the coastline there. Nice is a great town. To me, Nice is the one town that's not a resort. It's a real town, you know. Mm. And then from there, within an hour on either direction, you've got great towns to check out. Veronique, if you're thinking of uh, the favorite three or four stops on that charm bracelet, what would you recommend? I'm close or going either way from Nice. I would say Menton would be one because Menton is the last mm. French city on the coast before you reach Italy. I and really like Menton. M-E-N-T-O-N. Correct. Menton. Yes. Okay. And um, so going that way. But if you go the other way, I would say Antibes. Mm. Antibes is a lovely town with a great, wonderful museum. Mm. And an old town as well. A Cannes. Cannes is like Nice, a big city. But there are others. Um, it's it's just a big one. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are smaller ones as well. So you can really. I like the back country too. The little villages like Es and yeah, yeah. So and to me. Khan is is a big city, and mm-hmm. to me, it's overrated because it's famous for the film festival. The, fe- the film festival. Nice was always my favorite over Khan. See, there's I, no question. Let me be just really bold. I do not like Khan. <laughs> Disappointed? <laughs> I, I, just, I, I don't know yeah. why you'd go to Khan because you've because got Antibes, you've got yeah. Villefranche, yeah. you've got Monte Carlo, even you've mm-hmm. got Nice, you've got Menton. Mm-hmm. The backdoor town is Menton. Mm-hmm. The backdoor, the town with no nothing glitzy. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. and and Menton is beautiful, yeah. and, and you can go to the beach there. You can go up in the old town. There's a lot to do there. You know, the first time I went to Menton, I went on a bus ticket, and the bus ticket cost me like two euros, about Mm -hmm. two dollars or something. Bus number 100, I got on it in Nice, 
And the beautiful thing is it drives right along the coastline through so many wonderful, famous places. Mm -hmm. And the end of the line, I believe, was Menton, as you said, just before the Italian border. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the story, Veronique, about uh, the French Riviera area being French? Because it feels Italian a lot. This happened in the 19th century uh, during the Second Empire when Napoleon III this happened in several regions, actually, even north of the French uh, Riviera. Uh-huh. Uh, we were recently on a tour, and there are other regions like that. But basically, during Napoleon, the, under Napoleon III, during the Second Empire, these regions were asked to vote. They were asked to vote, let's just put it this way. And so they became French, and Nice became French. So wait a minute, there's all of these areas that are today in the Italian border area of France, mm-hmm. and in the 1860s you have the Risorgimento in Italy, mm-hmm. this movement for unification, mm-hmm. and they didn't know for sure if the people along this border area wanted to be with the newly united Italy or to stay with France. Was that the issue? Yeah, yeah. It's my understanding. Not everybody was enthused, especially in the Haute-Savoie, in the Savoie, in the mountains. Um, They were not really enthused with the idea of joining France, if you will. Or they might have rather Uh, gone with Victor Emmanuel in Italy. Hmm. France kind of bullied them into France? Mm, I'm sure. And so um, Napoleon III had arguments uh, (laughs) that he put forward, and they became French, and that's how Nice became French. But Nice is so Italian. It feels Italian. It's so Italian, the, the wonderful pizza, the architecture, the walls, the colors on the walls. You feel like you're in Italy. With a, with a different French flavor. It's very interesting but mix. You, yeah, and you can, hear, you can hear it in the language also, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you, the you get, yeah. The Nisar is their local dialect, right? But it's just the way that they speak French also. Mm-hmm. It sounds almost Italian. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's Speaking of problem. sounding Italian, Nina, your last name, Sefusati. Is Italian. It doesn't yeah. sound very French to me. No, it doesn't sound very French. <laughs> yeah. No, the, that's the story of my, my husband's family. So your husband's family was an Italian, well, spoke Italian, but they lived in that they, area. They actually were part of that huge amount of people that fled the fascism in Italy and Mussolini. And uh, then, you know, when you have one member of your family living in one part of the France and the others would follow later. So there was, you know, there's the whole, there are lots of Italians and Italian, you know, family names in the south of France, right? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the French Riviera and we're joined by Nina Sefuzati and Veronique Savoy. Savoy, that's the region just north of the area, isn't it? Yes. My so husband's can... last name was from La Savoie, and it was spelled differently at the time. But it, okay. I think that's where it came from. That's the story I always heard. That's, well, that sounds like it's <laughs> believable to me if his last name is Savoy. And, Savoy. Uh, it's pronounced Savoy, like the region. Uh-huh. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Monique, a good French name, is calling from West Newbury in Massachusetts. Monique, bonjour. Hi, how are you? Great. Do you have some thoughts on your experience in the French Riviera? Yeah, so uh, my family spent one day on the Cap Ferrat. We followed some suggestions from your guidebook to take a walk along this peninsula um, that goes by Paloma Beach, and it's a beautiful trail. It's very easy. It's mostly flat. I think parts of it were paved, um, and just really enjoy the views, and you can stop on the beach. We even stopped and collected tiny little pieces of sea glass. They were just all over the beaches everywhere. And um, I thought maybe the yachts must toss lots of wine bottles into the ocean. <laughs> so sea and glass, is that, is that what we call um, broken glass that's been sanded smooth and now it's just kind of colorful? Yes. 
That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. If they call it anything in French or not, but <laughs> yeah, it's good. But you're talking about just for our listeners here. You're talking about Cap Ferrat, the the Ferrat Cape, and it's very close to um, Villefranche-sur-Mer. Villefranche-sur-Mer. And uh, you can almost walk there. And uh, as as Monique is talking about, there's a like almost a paved path around this peninsula. Mm-hmm. And what I remember is it's just you're walking by all of these very elegant chateau. And in the middle, there's a Rothschild uh, chateau, a palace, uh, mm-hmm. a villa. Rothschild, yeah. Oh, they it's belong gorgeous. To the, yeah. the gardens uh, are magnificent. I think Leonard Nimoy had a house out there, mm-hmm. you know. Lots of... Uh, David Niven. David Niven. Very close by, yeah. And uh, the, the cool thing about it is there are these beaches. Now, Monique, you went to the Paloma Beach? Well, so we walked... The walk that we took started there, so we did stop there, and my family wanted to stop and rent chairs um, for the day, it was early in the day, but I had plan- bigger plans for us that um, met walking all, all along the whole peninsula. And so after that, we went, I think we had to take a bus back over to, um, I can't remember, what's the name of the other beach? It's um, Place, Passage? Place de Passage. Passage, yeah, Place de Passage. And it's another beach that's um, beautiful, too. And so by the time we got there, unfortunately, it was a Saturday in June. And I hadn't thought that we needed to reserve the chairs ahead of time. So yeah. when we got there in the afternoon, oh. it was too late. Um, and our teenager was a little disappointed, but oh. there's always still public access there, and you just can't use the chairs. Well, I remember um, so my we, favorite beach on Cap Farah is 50-50. It's a tiny little beach. It's just below the Rothschild Villa. Yeah. And half of it has a restaurant, and you pay to have a piece of the mm-hmm. beach. And half of it is it public. should be where you can go. Yeah. But yeah. Saturday afternoon, you might be asking for crowds. But generally, there's a beautiful opportunity. And if you have 20 bucks, you can rent a chair. And if you want to just sit on the rocks, you can do that. Yeah. The I, problem, of obviously, is the crowds, right? It, yeah. It's you, yeah. So what did you end up doing, Monique? So we decided um, not to let it ruin our afternoon. We just um, plopped down right on the pebbly sand, and we didn't even have towels. I thought that it would be very touristy, and we would be able to purchase those there, but um, it wasn't really like that. It was seemed like mostly locals at yeah. the mm-hmm. time we were there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just sat there, and we laid down, and we actually all fell asleep. <laughs> and um, we had a really great time. We were able to purchase some snacks there at the shack. So you were and, you were roughing um, it. You were roughing it in the shadow of the yeah, Villa Rothschild. But, but there <laughs> were that. lots of other people doing the same thing, and um, it was great. And we actually, there was a man that we saw there with a dog that had been on the bus with us in the morning, and he was on the public side, and he had um, his little dog with him, and he recognized us, and he smiled at me, <laughs> and he was making some sun tea, and I'll, I'll always remember that. Yeah, that's um, beautiful. So, yeah, it was still a great day. We didn't, didn't right. have any regrets, and, well, well, that um, but I would great. recommend reserving ahead if that's something that you want to do. That's a good idea. Thanks, Monique, for the call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Sefazati and Veronique Savoy, two guides from the French Riviera, and we're talking about their home turf. Nina, one of my favorite sites in the French Riviera is one that I know you like. It's the uh, Trophy of the Alps, right? Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. us what that the is. La Turbie, yeah. It's an interesting historic site because it's, it's, it's the Emperor Augustus. 
now showing a little propaganda, if I can say that, he has conquered these uh, tribes, right, in the south of France. So and this is uh, like in the first century or something. Uh, six, it's 6 BC, actually. 6 BC? Yeah, yeah. And so they beat the, the, the last of the barbarian tribes you know, in that area? Well, barbar- no, no barbarians, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, the proto-French. Ligurian, Ligurian tribes. The Ligurian, But it's okay. something like 45 tribes that he actually conquered, right? So obviously it's this huge monument that is much smaller nowadays because yeah. it was taken apart, right, uh, by yeah. later governments. But there's and, this 2,000-year-old um, Roman monument yep. on the hilltop above it Monte Carlo. Above Monte Carlo. That's the great thing about it. And you have this lawn, this huge lawn around oh, it. Yeah. I've brought people, we picnic, actually, in the shade there. of the trophy of Augustus. And you have this view of Monaco, which is just incredible. You know? And then you have an ancient Roman relief, mm-hmm. a, a sculpture that shows a Roman uh, general mm-hmm. with his boot mm-hmm. on the neck, neck. of oh, one yeah. of, the, of the tribe's people that he As conquered. As I said, piece of propaganda. A <laughs> <laughs> piece of propaganda. Oh, yeah. And that, in a lot of ways, kicked off the Pax Romana. Oh, because the Roman yeah, Empire had so. broken the spirit in the back of the, oh, yeah. of the uh, tribes that it wanted to control. And now they ushered in 2,000 years of stability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess for sure, peace, yeah, peace, for sure. you know, everybody's yeah. happy as long as the, the boot of the emperor is holding your neck But you the have ground. to accept certain things you know, to get the peace. So the, <laughs> yeah. that's the, the trophy of the Alps. And uh, Veronique, what's the special angle of the French Riviera that we might also miss and that you should think we should be aware of? I'm sorry, I'm going to be very, I'm going to be about food because I'm French. Uh-huh. And I do like uh, street food in Nice. Oh. I think Nice has great, and the Riviera for that matter, but Nice has great street street food, and I really enjoy it. From the soca to the pizza ladiere, that's like a pizza with, uh, you know, stewed onions on top. And the soca is that chickpea to crepe. The chickpea um, crepe. Yeah. And, um, and a glass of rosé, a slice of soca, or a slice mm. of pizza ladiere, or a slice of pizza, because we just said Nice has excellent pizza, right there on the Pebble Beach. Right on the Pebble Beach. And you know oui. what, what I like to... I know the restaurant you're talking about. There's a beautiful restaurant on the beach. And I always have to get a salad niçoise. Oh, is this the one right close to the big cliff? Right close to the cliff, yeah. Yes. Uh, what's the name? It's mm. famous, Nina. Do you remember? Mm-mm. I forgot uh, the name. People can find it. But a, a salad niçoise is just a good basic 10 or $15 lunch. And, yeah, uh, and you can have that inside a sandwich, and it's called a pan bagna. So ah, the pan right? bagna is the big round bread you slice open, and you put the salad niçoise inside, kind of, and so that becomes a pan bagna. It's, it's literally a salad from Nice. It a is. Yeah, salad niçoise. I want to close the conversation just with uh, what makes a salad niçoise really good, Nina? Hmm. Anchovies? Anchovies <laughs> and Veronica. Well, I I talk to the niçoise and they tell me that in the niçoise salad, the real one, there are no green beans. That's and everywhere you yeah. eat it, they put green beans in it. And so in Nice, very often, there are no green beans. So trade away the green beans so and have an extra anchovies. anchovies. Exactly. I like anchovies too, so I agree with Nina. All right. <laughs> Nina and Veronique, thank you very much for a better understanding of the French Riviera. Merci bien. Merci. Merci. Some of our listeners have used a link at ricksteves.com radio to send us haiku they've written about their impressions of France. Like these. John Allen from Tacoma, Washington, writes us a haiku about the architectural appreciation he developed in the north of France. Bayeux Cathedral. Gothic sits on Romanesque like a wedding cake. Carl Carlson from Kailua, Kona, Hawaii, sends us this haiku memory from his trip to France. Sancerre on a hill. Sauvignon Blanc at its best. We need to return. 
And Bill Gregory of Portland, Oregon, prefers to write limericks instead of haiku. He sends us this one that he wrote in France to commemorate its historical ties with the United States and the citizens who have given their lives for each other's freedom. When Washington met Lafayette, the link between our countries was set. Together we fought, and freedom we got. And so, let us never forget. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at Radio Canada in Montreal for their help this week. Hear more about the museums in Paris with Emma Jacobs and James Gardner on our website, ricksteves.com radio. See you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.